Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, welcome to the show. Hey, most weeks I have a guest on, and I like to glean from the guest some information and tools to help everybody, and of course, I also put them through my gauntlet of anxiety questions. But today, Brendan Reed, my producer, is joining me, and we're going to have a little chat, so here we go. So, Steve, the book finally released last week, and I'm actually excited that I think it's trending in two number one spots on Amazon last I checked. I don't know how those spots get decided or anything like that, but it was still pretty cool to watch it jump like it did. So my question then is, how does it feel to finally have your book out after so many months and so many years of work on this stuff? Yeah, it's been super fun. You know, I started writing the book. Like, I mean, I've been working with this material for 20 years, but I started writing the book right November, December 2016. So yeah, to finally have it released and, and um, you know, our podcast has really generated a lot of interest. So to have a, something for podcast listeners to be able to get their teeth around, super fun. And the thing that's been so gratifying is I've got a lot of friends and actually a lot of the folks I've met through the podcast who have been incredibly kind to endorse it, but also to share it on social media. So it's been, I've had a great week. It's been really fun. Well, that means too that we probably have quite a few new people listening to the podcast today for the first time. That's right. I think so, we have several hundred new listeners this oh week, yeah, actually. I, the numbers were definitely uptick this last week after your book came out. So I think in an effort to um, welcome those new people, to um, to really kind of give them a, what this whole podcast is about, um, I think it would be good for you to give us an overview of what the book is and what is what it is about. Yeah, great. Yeah, and I want to add my welcome to our new listeners. Uh, I think we would both say, Brendan, man, pick any episode you want, and I think you're going to run into a really great guest. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, for a good primer, the first two episodes that you and I did, the, the little two-minute episode we did, and then I think we did like a 40-minute primer, our second episode yep, on what the material right. is. So yeah, let's just talk through the book. Um, the whole point of the book is to help leaders and parents relieve pressure. I just think parents and leaders today are under so much pressure. And the way, the definition I use for pressure is anxiety. And so I, I know that title has actually tripped up some people where they think to themselves, well, I'm not anxious. And of course, what they mean is I don't worry much or I'm not afraid of much. But if you just think about it as pressure, the internal pressure we put on ourselves and then the pressure we face from around us, that's really what the book is doing is trying to give you tools to move through and, and relieve it. And it was born uh, first for me when I was a hospital chaplain under crazy amounts of pressure, both inside me and around me. And it was also born in a study of a theory named uh, family systems theory. And then there's a little subset of that theory called cybernetics. And I'm not going to nerd out too much right now. But I've, I've noticed, I've been really surprised, even in the family systems world, how few family systems theorists actually know cybernetics. Cybernetics is the theory of change, how problems happen, how they get worse, and how you resolve them. It's fascinating. And so in the book, I spend loosely... Half of the book dealing with internal pressure and internal sources of anxiety. So I help people in a couple of chapters diagnose the actual source of their anxiety. So they can go from like this jumbled mess to actually being able to name, oh, I'm anxious because I have a people-pleasing idol or I'm anxious because I'm in a double bind or something like that. And then the other half of the book really focuses on how a leader and a parent can notice how anxiety spreads in groups 
and how how to then uh, be a non-anxious presence and move people through. And so uh, I have a theology of anxiety in the book. To the best of my knowledge, I think I'm the only person to actually attempt to write a theology of anxiety. I want to circle back really quick um, for the new listeners. You said this idea, um, this book came out of um, what was your hospital chaplaincy. So how, where in that hospital chaplaincy did you encounter all this stuff that you're talking about? Yeah. So uh, every day I did because um, I, I started chaplaincy when I was 24. And this model of training, they actually refused to tell you what to do. They actually... Uh, gleefully refused to tell you what to do. So they just kick you in to be a chaplain with no training. So I'm walking into rooms with high, high anxiety, high grief, and I'm supposed to do something. Uh, or, or I guess I would say now, I believed that I was supposed to do something. And I had to learn as a chaplain, in order to be effective and really present to people, I actually had to overcome my need to do something and learn how to be present instead. And I think those just aren't the same things. So it was over the course of going into rooms every day, not knowing what to expect and not knowing what was going to happen, that I learned that there were things going on under the surface in my life. So uh, I, I write about this in the book, but probably the, the example people understand best is, is my beeper would go off. This is in the 1990s, back in the days of beepers and pages. <laughs> Old school. And uh, I'd have to get to the emergency room. And my job was to get to the emergency room double doors before the gurney came through because the ambulance shows up and the gurney comes through and the EMT is straddling the patient on the gurney and there's all kinds of yelling and commands. It's very anxious. And my job is to stay with the family while they're waiting for their loved one to be worked on. And it's just the worst to, to, to have a job where your job is to sit and wait, where you, you, you're not acting, you're not... You're not doing surgery. You just have to wait. And I noticed as I'd be walking to the emergency room that I'd be praying these prayers. And the first prayer was, um, God, please don't let that person on the gurney be my wife. And the second prayer was, please, God, don't let it be anyone I know. And then when I'd run down to the emergency room and I would meet the family and see the person on the gurney, and it wasn't my wife and it wasn't anyone I know, I would then pray a third prayer Thank you, God, that this is not my wife or anyone I know. Now, as I write about in the book, those are human prayers. I pray them today. But they're all prayers of distance. The, that final prayer, thank you, God, that it's not anyone I know, is almost exactly, actually, it's almost word for word, the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, where the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that person, a sinner. And I learned that, that my prayers were pushing people away because I was intentionally keeping distant from them. And I had to move through those prayers if I was going to engage them. So those are, that's just one example of one lesson I learned. And I think what was most surprising is when I left chaplaincy, all of those lessons of presence and the things inside me that block my ability, uh, they fit all the leadership roles I've had since then. And they also fit me as a parent, I've been a parent now for almost 19 years, and it's it's the same. And then uh, it happened to be that my chaplain supervisor, or one of them, was a family systems guru. He had actually personally trained under a guy named Murray Bowen. Murray Bowen's the founder of systems theory. And, um, and so one of my supervisors gave us a heavy dose of systems theory, and then when I went to grad school, I uh, took every systems class I could. 
So I came away from chaplaincy and grad school with a really unique set of tools on dealing with internal and relational anxiety and pressure. And all this stuff too, it doesn't, I, I just want to say this for the new listeners that not all of us are walking into a hospital room with people dying or families having to deal with death or a traumatic experience is that a lot of this stuff, it does transfer into, Hey, you're walking into a board meeting and you've got to give a presentation and that those feelings that you're having inside yourself when you walk into that, or, Hey, you're a parent about ready to have a hard conversation with your kid. Um, what, what are you feeling then and how are you reacting to it? And all that stuff that you learn transfers into everyday experiences as you handle and walk into situations. I think that's right. I think, I think what, chaplaincy had in common with leadership and parenting is you exactly as you put it you're walking into unknown situations or you're carrying something into a situation and what chaplaincy did for me was help me name what I'm carrying that I I knew there was something there I just didn't know what it was and so what I'm trying to do in this book is help people name what they're carrying and help them notice what others are carrying and also help them notice how a group infects each other with anxiety because uh what I say in the book is if you can name it and notice it, you actually flip the power dynamic, and that's the most powerful move. That's how you go from being managed by anxiety to managing it. So I, I want to do a quick plug here because I, I don't think that you can just read this and that um, you'll be able to get everything you can from it. Um, we did have a couple of guests, some of my friends come on an, an earlier podcast episode named Josh and Parker, um, and they kind of discovered that, yeah, you can read about this all you want, but it's really when you sit down and discuss it with people that you're able to find stuff out about yourself that you weren't aware of, and they're able to help you figure those things out. That's right. And this book actually came about because it was a group setting that you ran at our church where it was a class where a lot of the staff have gone and done this leadership class where they've gone through. So how did you combat the um, the group setting um, into the book setting? What are ways that you can not just read the book, but you can also engage more fully? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this material is best dealt with with at least one other person. I think we would both probably say ideally three to five people. Yeah. Yeah. And if you only find one other person that works, the power of the material is in externalization. So getting it out of your head and speaking it and listening to someone else speak it, there's way more power in that. And the challenge of a book, or I guess the limit of a book, is it's an internalization exercise. You read and you take it in. So um, what, what we've done is in our class, we do tons of externalization where we teach this material from the book and then we put people into groups and what? How long do you discuss, would you say? Oh, I think the group lasts about an hour about. Is yeah, that right? oftentimes we'll teach a tool and they'll take an hour even. And everyone shares, everyone gives examples. And it's in that process that transformation really happens. So so right on. So when I wrote the book, I knew right away it's not going to end with a book. Like I teach this class. People have really been transformed by it. I've been transformed through these materials because that was my chaplaincy experience. As I, as well. I did it interactively. Um, and so what I'm offering also is a group of videos that help any group guide themselves through the book. So um, the book is 10 chapters. So there's 10 videos for participants, one for each chapter. So you read the chapter, or if you're a listener, you know, a lot of, actually my publisher told me that Audible is outselling Kindle now. People prefer to hear oh, wow. it than even digitally. So we've got an Audible version too. Uh, so whether you read it or listen to the book, that's where you get the tools and the language. And then I've also got a video guide you can use that really helps you and a group of people you trust 
engage and, and shows you and gives you a path, really. That I'd say the videos are the path for any group to engage it. So I've got 10 videos for participants, and I've also got three videos for facilitators. So I, I would recommend when you get your group to choose a leader. And if you want, uh, everyone could take turns leading. That's actually a really good model. If, if you've never been through this and you don't want to lead it, you could actually all decide each week a different person is going to lead. So I've got 10 videos for participants and I've got three videos for leaders on how to lead the material. And then I've got, man, just all kinds, like tons of PDFs and templates that also come with it. So where do you grab this stuff from? Yeah, where so go to my it? website, uh, stevecusswords.com. You can also get there through managingleadershipanxiety.com and you'll see tabs. You'll see the podcast has a tab, the book has a tab, and then the videos and resources. And uh, you can buy them. Everything is cheaper the more you get. So the group bundle you can choose whether you want to stream it, if that's more convenient for you, or if you want to download it. There's different options on how you want to get the material. But whether you choose streaming or downloading, they all come with um, a PDF guide to show you every session. So really what I've done is I've boiled the, the, the book down to 12 sessions. And you may be listening to this saying, well, there's 10 chapters. Why are there 12 sessions? Uh, some of the some of the chapters like genograms and verbatims are very particular tools that we use in our class that you've gone through, Brendan, too. Yes, I have. Yeah, good times. Good times uh -huh. with genograms and verbatims um, where we encourage everybody in the group to do one. So if you do a genogram, and a genogram is kind of like a family tree where you look at relational patterns and generational patterns. If you do a genogram and there's four people in your group, that means you need to do four genograms before you move on to the next chapter. So I've basically condensed it down to 12 sessions for a group of four. And these sessions don't have to be just 12 sessions. I do want to plug that as like, if you take more time on this stuff, it'll be way more beneficial to you than it is if you quickly go through it, right? That's right. If I was really smart, I would have actually added up. I think at our church, we do this in 18 to 20 sessions. It's like half a year. Yeah, we take time off. Like we take a break at December and we take a break. We take a couple of breaks, but it's we go from the like early September to end of April with a couple of breaks every other week. We don't meet yep. every week, every other week. And when we meet, we meet for two hours every other week. And some meetings, we're always just discussing tools. And some meetings, someone's presenting these things we just talked about, the genograms and verbatims. And you actually have um, a, a discount, right, for people right now? We do. We're actually treating our podcast listeners. So when you go on the website, if you go to stevecusswords.com, if you click on videos and resources, it'll take you to the store where you can buy all of these materials. And if you're a podcast listener, when you go to checkout, just type the word podcast as a coupon code. We'll have that in the show notes too. And that'll give you a 15% off discount everything. And that's going to be a limited time deal. We, I wasn't sure how these videos would go. So we're just going to kind of sweeten the deal a little bit for a while. Um, so if you're in a staff or a church or an organization, uh, if you're in a family, you can do this. I've even had some people say that they're just going to get a group of friends and go through this together. Um, I'd highly recommend you add the videos. It's it's going to way improve your experience. And it's not just for people who want to do this in the group, right? Like you've got stuff, uh, packages for people who are just professionals and just want material. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So I've been in conversation with a couple of seminary professors uh, also, my wife, who's a therapist, she was digging in on this and she's like, man, you need to offer these individually. So, for example, we have a video on how to create a genogram. 
But then we have another video, for example, for a therapist on how do you facilitate a geneogram? What do you look for? What themes do you look for? How do you help somebody really mine the depths of their geneogram? And along with that, um, I've created a, a genogram key that's a downloadable PDF that way simplifies the genogram keys online. When I look online, they're so complicated. And uh, if you want to be that technical with your genogram, you can. My experience is when you get too technical with your genogram, you kind of lose the heart of it. So I've simplified it. Uh, it's simplified the colors and the codes. So yes, you can just buy the video on how to construct a genogram and get the key. Uh, the same with verbatims. So uh, seminary professors, uh, graduate school people, chaplains and therapists, I've got tools just for them. They're not going to maybe want to buy all the group material. They just might buy one video with the accompanying PDF. Hey, Brennan Reed here, uh, producer of this podcast. Hey, if you know of a college-age student or 20-something who really wants to explore what ministry is like, they should consider spending a year with us at Discovery Christian Church out here um, in the Front Range of Colorado. My experience with this residency was I wasn't just getting coffee. I actually got to be a part of the church staff, and that meant that I had a voice in meetings. Um, I even got the opportunity to build a ministry from the ground up that Discovery did not have during my residency. And out here, we really uh, try to reach intellectual skeptics as well as followers of Jesus. And we're very passionate about engaging the chronic needs of our city and the world around us. Residents spend a year with us and they take a class that dives into the material of this podcast. They also take on leadership responsibility and you come away with a tangible ministry experience to set yourself up for a career in vocational ministry. Uh, so as a resident, you get to choose a specialty. We have youth, children's, worship arts, communications, preaching and adult discipleship. We also have local and global outreach and executive pastor work. We do provide housing with a family and we offer a small stipend. To apply, click the link in the show notes or you can visit dc2.me, click the about tab and choose our residency. All right, just to recap, uh, we, your book just came out. Uh, we've got some material online for a lot of our listeners. We've got some coupon codes. And we also felt that it was a good idea for the two of us to even talk about another piece of the book that we haven't mentioned yet, which is one of my favorite and least favorite topics, double binds. Double binds. Yeah, one of, our, one of the things that's really fun when Brendan and I get on the show is we actually cover an actual specific tool uh, so yeah, today we're going to talk about double binds. Good which, times with double binds. Yes, which in double binds, if you're not familiar, um, is any situation uh, that you get put in, whether you put yourself into the situation or someone's put you into the situation, where no matter what decision you make, you lose. Right. So <laughs> Steve, can you can you kind of walk us through uh, more descriptions about what a double bind is, the two different types um, of double binds that there are? Yes. So two chapters in my book is diagnosing specific sources of anxiety and a double bind is a source of anxiety by which what I mean is it's why you're anxious. It's what generates anxiety. And the theory behind uh, this is if you can diagnose the source of your anxiety, you can actually gain a lot of ground in overcoming it. And so what will happen with a double bind is you'll be in one and you don't know you're in one. You just know you're anxious. 
So if you can figure out, wait a minute, I'm in a double bind, it actually gives you tremendous power to not just reduce your anxiety, but also break the double bind. So I think you said it beautifully. A double bind is basically no matter what you choose, you lose. The unique thing about a double bind is it's both an internal source of anxiety and a relational source. People put us in double binds and we put ourselves in double binds. So I think probably the simplest explanation uh, that I use in the book is Christmas morning. Let's call a guy Charles. He comes down for Christmas morning. He opens his gifts from his parents. And it's two packages. He has two gifts from them, and they're exactly identical. It's the same shirt. It's the same type of shirt from the same company. The only difference is one shirt is red and one is blue. Later in the day for Christmas dinner, he comes to dinner, and he's wearing the blue shirt. And his parents says, well, what was wrong with the red shirt? (laughs) That's a double bind. No no matter what he chooses, he's going to lose. And so then it gets really interesting because we could probably bat back and forth a few examples of double binds. Some, some of them we put ourselves in and some we find people trying to put us in. Yeah, actually, I, I've got a really good example. Um, and I am, I'm going to tell the story, but I'm going to change some of the details um, to protect the story in itself. But when I was at college, um, I had one of my friends, let's call him David. He came to me and he said, hey, I, I, I want to tell you something. Um, can you keep a secret? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I can keep a secret, David. So David then proceeds to tell me a secret that one of our mutual friends, Rick, told him. And Rick had told David in confidence that I was not allowed to tell, that he was not allowed to tell the secret to anybody. But then David just told me Rick's secret. And so now here I am stuck in the situation where I um, now have Rick's secret, even though I'm not supposed to know it. And David doesn't want me to tell anybody else that he told me Rick's secret. Not only that, but you've promised David before you knew what you were promising. He's already kind of got you under the gun. Yeah. I, and, and I was in a lose-lose situation where if I told Rick that David told me this, David was going to be mad at me because I broke his trust. And if I didn't tell Rick, then I run the risk of uh, Rick down the road saying, hey, you knew about this? Why, why didn't you say anything? Yeah, how could you know this? Because if I understand right, because I happen to know the details of this, this secret had a, a lot of pain for Rick. Yeah, there was there was a lot of pain, um, and it was just a painful relational situation where, um, if this person found out that I knew down the road, like I would be in serious trouble if I wasn't aware, if I didn't tell them that I knew. Right, and even just your relationship with this guy, your natural tendency would be to want to care for this guy now that you know. And now you're in a double bind. Yeah. And that's, that's an example of one. I mean, they're some of the absolute worst situations I think that you can get put in, especially if somebody puts you in one of those. I put myself in a double bind last night. Oh, you did? Yeah. So uh, we're in Denver and uh, what, a few weeks ago we had the now famous bomb cyclone storm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Crazy snow shut down the whole city. And there was supposed to be some version of the second one last night. And last night we had an elder meeting scheduled. So do we cancel the elder meeting because I don't want my elders skating in our parking lot on ice trying to get to the car, break a hip? Or do we meet? Now, this is an internal double bind. I made the decision we're going to cancel. We're going to cancel it. And as you and I both know, the snow never showed up. And this morning I kept saying, and I actually texted the chairman of our elders. I should know better because I teach this stuff. And I said, (laughs) ah, we should have met. We should have met. That's an internal double bind. I couldn't, I can't win. I can't choose. Like one of the ways you know you put yourself in an internal double bind 
is when you finally do make a decision, if you regret that you didn't go the other way, that's a good sign of an internal double bind. And the one that I just shared was an external one. External. It was uh, David, right, who put you in the double bind. Yeah, he put me yeah. in the double bind. And there's another form of anxiety that you you happened to you that we haven't covered yet, which is called triangulation. Yep. David actually triangled you in a relationship between he and Rick, which is adding to your anxiety. Oh, absolutely. What, I, did, what did you do? We need to resolve it for our listeners. <laughs> Well, I actually ended up telling Rick what had happened, um, and that did it did cause a problem. Um, I uh, David did feel like his trust was betrayed, but I I think in the situation that I was in with the pain that was involved, I, I feel like it was a a well thought out decision in that sense. It didn't it wasn't a win win. I mean, David was still very upset with me in the end that I had betrayed his trust with telling Rick that I knew the secret. I think it's worth diving in on this example a little bit because a couple of interesting extra dynamics. You made the conscious choice to keep the integrity of your relationship with Rick. Yeah, absolutely. And and therefore to somewhat not break the integrity of your relationship with David, but but you were in a double bind, lose lose. So you choose you chose which losing path to go down. Yeah, I did. Could it, you talk us through what that was like to have to make that choice? I spent a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't something that I figured out right overnight. I I think I had to weigh. Um, the the gravity of the situation and what the secret was to make that decision, um, and it, it I spent, man, I can't remember how many nights losing sleep over it, yeah, because that's that's how serious a situation was that I got put into was, um, somebody could possibly find some sort of healing or um, that type of uh, thing in the situation, whereas, um, David. You know, he, I was betraying trust that I was trying to build with him. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think for our listeners, if we're talking about double binds, step one is just to have the power to name that you're in one. And then step two is to, to clarify your values. Yeah, absolutely. That's that, really I think that, that's what helped me decide was mor- moral, morality wise, my moral fiber, what was, what felt right to me. What kind is, of person am I? Yeah. I'm, the, I'm the kind of person, I'm putting words in your mouth, so correct me, but. I think you're saying I'm the kind of person that when I know a friend is in pain, I want to be there for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, and that was kind of my moral deciding factor of it. And I, I think in the end, um, I mean, my relationship with both these people is fine now. Like I, it's, it's not been totally destroyed. And yeah. I think that that, I just want to touch base on this is I think that that is one of the lies of double binds is most of the time, not every situation, but most of the time we feel like this lose, lose is detrimental. Like it's going to totally destroy if it's a relational relationship um, or an internal thing, it's going to totally destroy the situation. Like nobody's going to, oh, they're not going to talk to me anymore. Right, like, that's I right. One, one of the lies of a double bind is it tries to convince you that you're doomed no matter what. But actually there are more than two paths, especially with the gospel, with the good news. I, I hate to get too like simplistic about it, but when I teach double binds, I really do teach that that the future that God is in has more options than the double bind leads us to believe. Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing I think is worth chasing before we move on from your story, I think a lot of our listeners can relate to the trap that you are unintentionally put in. I don't believe David intended to trap you. No. But he basically asked you to keep a a secret before you knew the nature of the secret. And the way he asked you was about your character. He said, he's basically saying, do you have the integrity to hold confidence? So of course you're going to yeah. say yes. Mm-hmm. And then, and I think particularly a lot of church leaders find ourselves in this situation. People say, can you keep a secret? And you think to yourself, 
well, I am the kind of person that can hold a secret. But then when they tell it to you, you realize, oh, yep. What was that like for you? Oh, I I remember during the headlight moment of, oh my gosh, I just, I walked into a can of worms that I was sinking rapidly in. Like the secret that I just was told was too heavy to bear. And I, and I kept wondering too, is like, well, maybe that's, they, maybe they told me this because they wanted me to do something about it. But yeah, I, it, it was just like, I got hit in the side of the head with a frying pan. Like, oh wow. Oh, okay. Uh, now I don't stuck. think that I can keep the secret, you know? This is one of the ways that anxiety spreads among people is David was super anxious because he was holding a heavy weight and he needed someone to share the weight with. Yep. And now you're holding a heavier weight because you're not just holding the pain of your friend, you're holding the power of secrecy. So that's this is a great example of how anxiety spreads in groups. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I wanted to backtrack too really quick is that you, before we got to my situation, you said something about, you just put yourself in one mm. the night prior. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's important to note for new listeners. And as a reminder is that when you learn this stuff, you, you might feel like, Hey, I'm going to try to fix this all the time. But the reality of the situation is, man, you're probably going to get it right. 35% of the time. Yeah. You're still going to mess up. Yeah. No, that's a great example. Like I'm supposedly in this case, the maestro of this material. Yeah. And it was exactly 12 hours ago that I put myself in a double bind. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. It's and th- and that's just the gravity. I mean, not the gravity, but that's just the the nature of all this stuff is, man. You're you're never going to get it right. And I think going into this material, um, and just even double binds is an example that, um, I'm going to completely change how I interact with people is not the right not attitude true. at all. That's a great reminder. Yeah, the power of the book isn't that you'll no longer get in double binds. I think the win for me is I'm so much quicker at noticing it. So I didn't stay in it more than a few minutes. I realized, wait a minute, I'm putting myself in a double bind. So it doesn't stop us from getting anxious. I think the power of the book is it keeps us from staying anxious. Yeah, and that and that's where that self awareness and, and being aware of all that stuff doesn't actually help all the time. It's you know, what, I think you said in an earlier episode something about um, you can be the most self aware jerk in the room. Yeah, and it doesn't help anybody. Yeah, we all know somebody who is self aware, and no one wants to be around them. Yep. It's some, what are the, they say things like, um, I just tell it the way it is. That's mm-hmm. often a sign that someone's self-aware and a jerk. Mm-hmm. So by the way, if you listen to this and you're one of those people that says that, you might actually ask your friends what oh, that's man. like for them when you say, I just tell it how it is. Because oh, man. I think your friends are probably saying, actually, she doesn't tell it how it is. Mm-hmm. She tells it how she thinks it is, which is very <laughs> slanted. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we're gonna we're gonna lose listeners. I, I know, I know, I know. We just I know. <laughs> um, so back to double binds. Yeah. Uh, can you give us some examples of how to notice them? And yeah. What to do? Yep. So let's start with internal double binds. There, there's two ways to notice an internal double bind. If if you're the kind of person that puts off a decision because you don't want to get it wrong, you're probably prone to double binding yourself. And um, that's the step one, is you can just pay attention. Why is it that I I seem to always want someone else to decide? I remember when I was really doing some intense leadership development at church, and I had some people who were newer to leadership, and they were still getting the hang of how vulnerable leadership can be. And I noticed that they kept wanting me to make decisions that they were more qualified than I was to make. And it was a form of a double bind internally for them. I remember... Uh, one of my good staff members, uh, she was in charge of catering a big church picnic that year. 
but she wanted me to tell her how much meat we were doing smoked pork. Mm. And she wanted me to make the call on how much meat we should order. And I remember gently kind of chiding her and saying, oh, I see how it is. Like you want me to run us out of meat or you want me to have too much meat left over. You don't want to carry it. But she was kind of paralyzed by making the call because she was in a lose-lose. She was like, we're either going to have so much meat I'm wasting too much money or we're not going to have enough and we're going to run out. What, you know, what do I do? Well, I'll get Steve to decide. So if you're in an internal double bind, you can start to notice when you're postponing decisions and it's because you don't want to get it wrong. That's often a double bind. The other sign for an internal double bind is once you finally made the decision, you spend time thinking about what it would have been like if you'd made the other decision. Mm. That's the double bind I put myself in yesterday. I made the call. We're going to cancel the meeting because of snow. Snow never came. And then I said, oh, we should have met. It's a classic double bind. Back and forth. Back and forth. Can't win. Can't win. Like I can't, I can't both try to keep my elders safe and predict Colorado weather. The weatherman couldn't even do it. Why could I do it? And so I think the solution is to internal double binds, it really is grace. Like you have to be gracious to yourself and you have to say, I'm going to get it wrong. And I think too that this is more common than people realize. Yeah. And I, I think you actually mentioned before we started this podcast, um, outside of the recording, you said something to me about actually double binds was the introduction to systems, family systems theory and how it got born. That's right. That's worth noting. Very good. Yeah. So, um, Murray Bowen, 1950s, he's the father and founder of family systems theory. He was a psychiatrist, interestingly enough, at a psych ward in a hospital. And he's studying paranoid schizophrenic young men in their early to mid-20s. So fully grown men. And uh, they're all living in this psych ward. This is 1950s, old school, you know, where people lived in mental institutions. for And lobotomies happened too. Right, right. <laughs> Not a good time. Oh, my goodness. Uh, And when Bowen came along, everyone had understood uh, schizophrenia as purely an internal situation, kind of if you were like a Freudian situation, that that Freud and that stream of psychotherapy. And Bowen noticed uh, on Sunday afternoons, it's parent visiting hours, and mom or dad would come. And let's say it's the mother, for example. Uh, She would come, and she is coming to visit her fully grown son, And because of his schizophrenia, he's a little scary. The way he acts, his outbursts, things like that. And so you just picture this poor woman. She's raised this from a boy to a young man to a man. And now he's this physically intimidating guy who has a lot of power. And so as she's walking to him, Bowen noticed that she's putting her arms out for a hug, but she's kind of being tentative. Like she wants to hug him because she's his mother, but she's not fully there she's kind of afraid and so the the man notices the ambivalence of his mother and so he only gives her a tentative hug and then she says to him what's the matter aren't you glad to see me oh man yeah which you understand why she would yeah but that puts him in a double bind he's getting a mixed message and and bowen started to actually build family systems theory out of not just what internally causes uh, anxiety and, and pathology in his case, but how our relational patterns do it as well. It's fascinating. And that, and that, even that example, like there are so many different nuances going on inside that example that you just share. Like I can't even begin to pinpoint every single one of them, but I mean, there's the ex- internal stuff. Yep. There's the external stuff. Yeah, like there's a thing called a mixed message that I cover in the book too. That's a big source of things. She's sending a mixed message. I want to see you. I don't want to see you. And this is why I think this stuff is so important. And I know I'm getting off topic a little bit, but man, 
just your everyday interaction with people. There's yeah. just so much stuff that you're carrying around there. Everybody else is carrying around. Yeah. It's no wonder we've got so many problems with people. Yeah. I, th- I really think this is why leaders and parents are under so much pressure because this stuff we're talking about, I think you'd probably call this like subtext. I think what all I'm doing in the book is I'm talking about what we all already feel, but don't know, or we all already feel, but we don't know what to do with it. Or we just do it because we we're, we just act the way that we act. It's the way it's feel always like, been done. Yeah. Or people feel like, oh, I, I can act this way because it's me and you've just got to accept it. A huge light bulb went on for me while I was reading the book. And I write about it at the end of one of my chapters. Is I, I'm in the dining room writing my book. And, you know, the two rooms over is our family room. The TV's on. And at the time, my preteen daughter, she was 10 or 11. And she's watching the kind of shows that preteen girls love to watch. The the Disney shows where there's tons of girl drama. Um, she loves Gilmore Girls. Like, and and I'm listening to all the drama going on. And as I'm writing, it was so wild for me. As I'm writing about double binds and mixed messages and triangulation, I'm listening to the show where all these friend groups are putting each other in double binds and mixed messages. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, no wonder my daughter loves this show and no wonder they call it a drama. Because it, it is. It's raising the relational tension yep. to make for good television. Oh, absolutely. And and I'm just saying in the book, I'm just saying, let, let's leave the drama on the television and let's actually be non-anxious. Let's let's diagnose these things. So before we wrap up, we gave an internal example. We should also talk through uh, what it's like when you're a leader or a parent and you get an external example. Yeah, do you have any of those? Yeah, so I think a really common one, because you know, people are hearing double binds and they're saying, okay, two lose-lose situations and the Christmas story with a shirt, yeah. that's pretty concrete, mm-hmm. but they can be really subtle. I think your example was really concrete and helpful. Yep. Something that's more subtle would be if you're a ministry leader and you're working with another leader or a volunteer, and you're trying to give them what you think they want, and you're not able to do it. The more you try to do it, the less happy they seem to be. The The way I would call it is like they're painting a target for you to hit, and when you hit it, you lose. <laughs> now, I will just say this is actually a technique of abusive people. Oh, really? Uh, and, and narcissists. Narcissists actually use double binds intentionally to make you think you're crazy. So when I worked for a narcissist, I mean, you know, I, I worked for a narcissist for a while, and it almost did me in. Um, and it is some of the grist for the, the book that I wrote. Um, one of the things he would do is he would paint you a clear target, and when you hit it, he'd punish you. Wow. Yeah, it would talk about a way to make yep. someone think they're crazy. And so on a much less intense scale than narcissism, uh, I, I've noticed this. When somebody comes to me and they've been a faithful volunteer in the church and they're amazing and they're reliable, they're like God's gift to the church. And they come to me and they say, I need a break. I'm so tired. And in the early days of ministry, I would say, you need a break. Like you have been so faithful you deserve a break. I'm so happy. And I find myself now getting really anxious because so many of those really amazing people, uh, they, they've come to us and they want a break, and then they go and tell others that they feel kicked out, that they feel unwanted. And it, that, to me, feels like a double bind because you really want this volunteer to get the break they need. They've, they, they're incredible. Yep. But they, they don't... It's almost like they've somehow forgotten that they came and said, I need a break. And over time, they're saying, obviously, they don't need me. But you're trying to honor their space. 
And I think that's a double, that's a more sophisticated double bind where it was, you think you're trying to hit the target and you're losing your intention to give them a break actually makes them feel hurt. And it's not that I want to be clear. It's not the volunteer's fault. There's some dynamic going on there that is a double binding kind of dynamic. So what, okay. That's actually a good example. I, I run into that a lot. Um, just with my job at, the, at my role at the church right now, like yeah. I, I've got over 170 something volunteers that I help to manage. Yeah. Um, and that kind of stuff happens quite a bit. Yeah. So can you, you know, when that happens, whether it's a church staff or if it's your kid, I mean, how do you name that and call it out um, on the spot with the person and make sure that you're being respectful? It's really hard, isn't it? Like yeah. when someone's coming to you and they've earned because I think, I think so many, I bet so many of our listeners have had this where the church has burned you out or you as a leader have put too much on a, on a good person. So that's what's hard about this situation is I, I certainly don't want to do that. I don't want to be that church that chews through good people to get ministry done. I think that's awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think naming it is powerful. And I also think it's uh, respectful of the person to say, I, I'm really thrilled that you're getting a break. I have found that um, regular follow-up with that person is helpful. And then an invitation back in. I, I think helping that person hear that you miss them and you miss their impact without that like hook, a manipulative hook of we really need you back. But um, mostly it's it's naming the dynamic. I've had follow-up conversations with several people who feel hurt. And just to say to them, what I heard from you was I need a break, but it feels like we communicated a different message to you. I'd like to hear the impact of that. And just doing some repair work is really important. Oh, that's, that's a good piece of lingo right there is just, Hey, what I heard is this. Can you, but you're actually saying is what is, this is what happened. Yeah. Cause just, I think that makes them feel heard too. Yeah. That's a really good way to diffuse a double bind, man. Yeah. And it's just also the nature of, church ministry that you do feel more cared for when you're on a team i don't know if that's healthy or not but helping people understand that i think is good too one of the ways to get out of a external double bind is is um you can be waving a flag in your head when you are trying harder than the person in front of you to help solve their problem that's a double that's often a double bind i've had situations and i've also had this as a parent where let's let's use it in a family example. We'll take it out of the church. The kid comes with a problem, and they want they've asked you for help. And then every helpful thing you offer, they say that won't work. What else do you have? That won't work. What else do you have? And they don't say it that way, but they're kind of batting away. You you're getting into a double bind. It's like wait a minute, you asked my help, and I'm not being helpful. That's the double bind part. You can just pause and say, well, you've asked my help. And I've tried to help, and I'm not being helpful. What would you like to do next? What is, and and really, what it is is just clarifying. What is it you actually want? Sometimes, especially as dudes, what people really want is just to be listened to and understood. And here am I trying to fix. You know, I'm still after all these years oh, a fixer. I do it all the time. Yeah. So I don't like. And Brendan, you and I have talked about this a lot. This this podcast and my book. It's not for you to become this phenomenal leader while all these lousy sheep, right, who are lower than us. Like sometimes when you find yourself in a double bind, I've done this, where I'll say, I'm trying to be helpful, but I feel like I'm missing the target because you keep batting it away. And the person will say, yeah, that's because you keep trying to tell me what to do. I don't want to know what to do. I just need someone to listen to. Oh, I, I missed the target. I thought the target was 
solve the problem. The target is actually listen and care. I can do, I can do that. In fact, it relieves me of my own anxiety because I do. One of the ways that I show up when I'm anxious is solve. Yep. Um, so that's a helpful. And so I, that's where I want to give the impression. It's not that you and I are teaching an elite group how to have insight that no one else has. Oftentimes you and I are the problem. And so these tools really help you connect more humanly to people. Yeah, this, all this stuff is really interesting because it actually just I just just triggered something to me where I remembered it was like, oh yeah, there are times when I go into a situation and I present all I want somebody to help me figure something out, and they keep telling me something that a helpful solution, and I don't actually know what I want, so I keep saying no, 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 yeah. and I'm putting people in double binds when I do that kind of thing. That's a really good example because oftentimes the reason you as a leader or a parent get in a double bind is you're trying to clarify what the person coming actually is confused about. And it's their confusion that's putting you in a double bind. That's why you're losing because they don't know what a win looks like. Yep. Yeah, so the super helpful thing is to simply ask them over and over, what is it you want? And if they have keep saying, I don't know, I think as a leader or a parent, you can simply say, well, that's fine. I'm just going to listen until you know. And you may not know now, but I, I'm not going to move into like solutions. Let, let me just listen, you know, go ahead and vent. And that frees you from trying to help be helpful. That's good. Yeah. Double binds are super nuanced. I think actually this episode is the evidence of why we really encourage people to take the book and get into groups because it's in the dialogue that you really help process. And yeah. I think the closing thought I want to have on double binds is, is um, the whole theology behind all of this material is that anxiety is a spiritual force. It's a spiritual dark force that keeps us from recognizing the presence of God and it shrinks our world. And so uh, anxiety resides in the space where God resides. And I, I believe anxiety competes for that space. And so we, we're not as aware of God's presence. What that looks like in a double bind is a double bind tells us the lie. There's no hope. There's no options. But the gospel always has more options, more future. Even the option of if you are truly in a lose-lose double bind, the best thing is just to lose faster. If you're going to lose, just get it over with. You know, like if you know you're doomed, go ahead and lose so you can move on. But more often than not, if you pause and recognize you're in a double bind, you can actually pray, you can dialogue with someone, and you can start to figure out, I thought there were two bad options. There's actually two bad options and six, well, maybe not good, but better than doomed options. Absolutely. And I, I just want to do a quick plug too, um, as we do in a lot of our episodes, is that if you think that you don't have any anxiety, if you think that you're not anxious about something, um, maybe you're not aware of what your anxiety is. Yeah. And a lot of times for me, my anxiety shows up in anger. Yeah. Right. Um, so if you tend to get angry in situations, that is a response to you being anxious and a defense mechanism. Yeah. And anxiety I, is whatever happens next when you don't get what you want or what you think you need. Also, if you're not sure that you're an anxious person, just ask someone who loves you how you show up when you're anxious and just don't punish them when they tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Steve. We, we look forward to keep, uh, keeping this podcast going and keeping the book going for people and continuing dialogue. Great. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram from the handle Steve Cusswords. You can also go to stevecusswords.com for more resources. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.